0: Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504, C2, Title 17.
1: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of The Warriors, starring Michael Beck. Deborah Van Valkenburg, James Ramar, David Patrick Kelly, David Harris, Dorsey Wright, and Lynn Thigpen. Or at least her face. (coughs) Directed by (coughs) Walter Hill, released in 1979 on a budget of $4 million, grossed $22.5 million at the box office. So, Ron, this is our second part of the Rock and Roll Dystopia trilogy you've put together for us here uh, this uh, late summer and fall. And, man, you're like a super fan of the Warriors.
0: Yes, I uh I've watched this movie probably, I don't know, 40 times, 50 times, conservatively. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I bought the DVD when it first came out where they added back all the comic book transitions and stuff that Walter Hill originally wanted in the movie. Uh, But my first exposure to it, as my first exposure to most things, was when it appeared on uh, Monster Vision. Joe Bob Briggs hosted it. And he talked in great detail about how, um, it, the, as he went through the show and as they did the commercial breaks, and every commercial breaks, he b- pulled out a subway map and charted on the subway map like where the warriors were supposed to be, huh. uh, how they actually got to where they were, and then uh, additionally he gave information on where they were actually shooting at, which, funnily enough, for a movie that starts out in the Bronx, they never go to the Bronx.
1: well it probably didn't look right on camera especially in 1978 79 when they were making this thing and the only thing i know about this man i know i've seen pieces of it here and there first time sitting and watching it front to back though for this review (coughs) i was really aware of this when they made like a playstation game for it several years back um i remember like seeing that i didn't really play it i think i played a demo of it once and i was like okay this seems kind of like grand theft auto but smaller or weirder or something i don't know and uh Then I ended up, uh, you know, just catching pieces of it here and there. I know about it like in terms of pop culture, but the thing I didn't know about it was that this was a Walter Hill movie. Like, I had never put that together before until watching this and I saw his name in the credits and I was like, holy cow, Walter Hill. That's right. I, I think of him so much as like Beverly Hills cop guy and then one of the producers of Alien and all that kind of stuff. I don't really think about his. Directorial stuff before then, and it's neat that you mentioned this was a comic book. I didn't realize this was also based on a comic series. I thought it was based on a novel.
0: Uh, actually, it was it was based off of a novel, uh, but when it was originally envisioned, Walter Hill wanted to uh, to essentially give it a comic book framing device, like in certain scene transitions, they were going to go comic book style with it. The opening credits were going to be more comic booky. It was going to kind of play up the the exaggerated nature of the world, uh, but the studio, for obvious reasons, said no. Uh, this is this is good enough.
1: I do think it's neat that they frame this in an alternate 1979. So as if New York in 1979 <coughs> wasn't dirty and grimy and gang-ridden enough, <coughs> it has to be somehow worse in in this version of 1979.
0: <coughs> yeah, real gangs just don't have this kind of flair. At least not until this movie came out. Then they were probably all inspired to get this level of flair. Maybe not yeah, the oh, face there is paint, so you know, much. but definitely the matching vests. I know I've seen that before.
1: Yeah, well, I saw that. Like, but I, my reference point for that is like Greece and West Side Story. And I think most people like gangs. Like that's what you think of. Like, nobody ever thinks of the t Birds and the Pink Ladies as gangs, but they're gangs. They just sing and dance instead. It would be More like West Side Story instead of you know this or like colors. You know, that's also what I think of when I think of gangs—is that?
0: Yeah, they're 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 uh, the T-Birds and the Pink Ladies are more like the Lizzies and the Orphans, and a lot less like the Gramercy Riffs and the Turnbull ACs.
1: <laughs> yes, much so, and I dare say there's not a, maybe maybe the guy with like the pock marks and the car that shoots flames in Greece is the rogue dude, but like there's nobody close to that in, in that movie at all, so. <laughs> Uh, I think I also knew the David Patrick Kelly bottle scene, you know, warriors come out and play. I think you yeah, had just seen that and stuff and had heard about it. I know him. I know he's a big David Lynch, you know, player and stuff. I, I know him as Sully and commando. I mean, I, I still kind of think of him as like that. He's been in the other stuff though, too. This stuff that I've, I've reviewed and I'd always find him to be just delightfully kind of leprechaunish evil.
0: That's a great, yeah. He's very puckish. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Puck was evil instead of just kind of indifferent.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, it's always this mischievous level of evil though. Like you can like him cause he's funny and he's just insane and weird. But <coughs> when you look at him, you realize like this guy's four feet tall. <laughs> like Michael Beck's legit, like six feet tall. Like, you can kill him. <laughs> so, but, and not to mention some of the other dudes in this flick, but you know, I, I love to have the little guy there is again, the, the leader of that gang, but we'll get into that as we go. It's, I, you know again, for me, man, not a movie I knew a lot about. I think I was just sort of culturally aware of it for so long. I think what's neat about it is that it i mean it had a good box office twenty two point five million off of four million bucks that's really good returns. I'm sure that's not what the studio expected
0: either yeah it kind of uh it kicked off a mini um street crime wave because you had a lot of especially you've got a lot of Italian movies that go and rip this off with like uh Bronx warriors nineteen ninety um You know, even a little bit of like Class of Nukem High, the Mm -hmm. Troma version of this, you you know, any kind of dystopian street punk scumbag movie from the mid early to mid 80s is is pretty heavily influenced by uh, the Warriors, if whether they admit it or not.
1: Well, whether Veronica Roth ever admits it or not, I think she completely ripped off some of the ideas of the factions in the Divergent books and movies from this. Like they're very much divided among some of the same lines. It was it was uncanny. I was watching this and I kept trying to tell my wife, I was like, it's like Divergent, but with with a bunch of dudes, you know. <laughs> so like there's no there's no Shailene Woodley person in there to come in and, and do things. But yeah, it's I guess that would be mercy in this case. But we'll see. So yeah.
0: Well, speaking of things we're going to see, Jay, why don't you tell us a little bit about this uh, dystopian alternate version of 1979 as it fits into The Warriors?
1: Okay, so straight honest truth here. I watched this movie twice, and then I opened up a doc, and I just typed out what I thought I remembered from it, so if I get stuff wrong, you just fix it on the back end for me and tell me about it. It's an alternate 1979, and all the gangs from 100 neighborhoods in the New York-New Jersey area send delegates to hear the leader of the biggest gang, Cyrus, pontificate about how much more they could do if they all just worked together. However, the absolutely insane leader of the rogues, Luther, played by David Patrick Kelly, shoots Cyrus, sending all the gang members running from the scene as the cops descend. We follow the members of the Warriors, particularly Swan, who Who's the second-in-command, and who must now traverse New York City through rival gang turf on their way back to the boardwalk of Coney Island. Along the way, they battle with several gangs, pick up a runaway gang member in Mercy who takes a shine to Swan, who's now apparently leading the Warriors, (coughs) and finally make it back home where the rogues and insane Luther awake. Luther and Swan prepare to face off, and Swan is able to use his knife to win a fight against a gun somehow. We'll talk about that. And that's when Cyrus's gang, the Gramercy Riffs, or the Griffs, show up having chased the Warriors all the way, thinking they were responsible for Cyrus's death. But the Griffs have learned the truth, and they deal with Luther and the Rogues while Swan, Mercy, and the remaining Warriors walk into the sunrise. In the city. Yes, and Joe Walsh uh-huh. brings us home. Yes, I saw that in the opening credits. Uh unlike the Big Lebowski, I'm a huge Eagles mark, and always will be and I love Joe <laughs> Walsh's stuff, all their solo stuff. I'm down for it, so when I saw that was there, I was like, that's what this song <clears throat> was written for. I had no idea all these years that in the city was for the Warriors and then ended up on several Eagles records later
0: yeah um it it's pretty it's it, it always catches me by surprise that at one point Joe Walsh was like cool enough to be in a hip teenager type movie even when directed by you know not exactly the hip teenager type walter hill
1: yeah and that's the thing walter hill got brought into this late right like they had another director and it wasn't going well so they brought in walter hill like two or three months before this thing started and he got it going really fast like that that's the amazing part of the story he was supposed to direct mm-hmm. Something else, And that didn't come to fruition. So he ended up doing this instead and pretty amazing job to organize it. I think the other thing I read behind the scenes about it that I thought was neat was there was supposed to be a completely other character that we follow. Fox was the, you know, the one we're supposed to follow from the warriors. And he's the guy that gets thrown in front of a subway beat street style halfway through this thing. And we never (laughs) hear from him again. And like, he has some sort of falling out with Walter Hill. So they took him out of the credits and they re-edited the movie to where it was more Swan specific (coughs) than Fox specific. Specific, which I think is one of those neat stories about how editing can completely and totally change a narrative if they do it right.
0: Yeah, and also, Fox, you never hear from him again because he's dead. Oh, well, that's just that FYI. Yeah, yeah,
1: that
0: is true. <laughs> Most <laughs> people don't survive getting thrown in front of a subway train.
1: No, but but that was not the original end of his character, is what I meant, from what I understand. They did that after he, like, walked up the set or something and they yeah, had a stunned. Yeah, he, stunt he and
0: Walter Hill didn't get along. Yeah, at so all. they threw a stunt man off a platform and said he got run over by a train.
1: Yeah. But he does like the, you know, the big hearted thing by letting Mercy get away and, you know, so he can wrestle with the cop who, you know, the Irish flatfoot that throws him over the side of the thing <laughs> into the oncoming train. Uh, it blew like a scene out of Max Payne or something, which was, uh, you know, another video game that I love and a movie that I actually don't hate. Uh, I'm in the minority on that. But yeah, I. I, I want to talk about like the whole idea here and the, all these gangs coming together and, and the way that we see them all walk up. And I realize, too, that Michael Jackson must have been a huge fan of this movie because the Beat It video is nothing but this.
0: The um, the subway station uh, where they shoot most of the train footage is the abandoned Hoyt-Shermerhorn Sher- Hoyt station in Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn. I actually stayed not too far from... Uh, Hoyt Street uh, the last time I was in in New York and that is the exact same subway station that they use in the taking of Pelham 123 that's the exact same subway station that they use in pretty much every movie that you need a subway station and that is the subway station that they use in the Michael Jackson video for uh bad I believe bad or beat it yeah everyone has a subway station it's that one
1: I could see Scorsese doing that. Yeah, that was, this would be his, I mean, it's his town, so yeah. Well, that's, so.
0: that's um, a subway station that hasn't been used, and the city just literally turned it into a place to shoot movies. It's the same subway station that you see in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too. See, what a great idea,
1: though, because like, we're not going to restore this thing, but if you guys want to pay us money to come down here and shoot and we don't have to disrupt service, all for it. See, that's thinking ahead as city planners. That's a good move. So. Yeah,
0: and when you're and when you on the subway, if you are looking out the windows, which I don't know why you would be, uh, but I right. did, because I was specifically waiting to see this station in the flesh as the train roared through, and I saw that station. Very so that was cool. Very one cool. of my many, uh, many fun things of the Warriors I saw. Uh, when I was in the city, uh, especially the time I went by myself, because I, I didn't have to worry about boring my poor wife to death while I went to Coney Island looking <laughs> for uh, bottles to clink together.
1: And to get on the Wonder Wheel. <laughs> well, it,
0: the Wonder Wheel was closed because I went in October, but I did get to hear some carnies yelling at each other, so that was fun.
1: Which is always a fun time, yeah. What I mean though specifically is the way all of the gangs are kind of pulling their delegates together, and they're sort of walking up. It's very much like the gang pieces walking up in the beat it video, as you know Michael Jackson's doing his thing at, and in the background and stuff. I, I just I don't know, and I know that came after the Warriors, but I'm watching this and realizing like, oh, this definitely influenced a lot of stuff, and it's not the only time we've seen that happen where everybody kind of bands together and then we're going to walk up together, you know, and all that stuff. And I, I think what's neat about this is. You think about like there's almost a thousand people at this grand meeting of, of Cyrus, right? Because he's called everybody together. But that's not everybody from the gangs. It's just the nine delegates they send. And you kind of wonder like how deep the rosters go on some of these. Because like the Baseball Furies look like they got quite a few people hanging well, around.
0: You saw how many Gramercy Riffs there are at the their Gramercy headquarters.
1: Yeah, like I the mean, well, the, yeah, that's literally how they're the like head. a
0: platoon of Riffs. <laughs> so if the Riffs have you know two hundred people hanging out. Uh, Who knows how many Baseball Furies or Turnbull ACs there are I mean, the Turnbull ACs have a bus full of people Yes Or two buses, actually they
1: scatter after one Molotov cocktail So not not that uh, ferocious as it turns out
0: Yeah, but fire is a good way to get the attention of the cops
1: It does work, that is true Even in 1970s New York, so as as it turns out, what I also think is neat about this is how the cops are like laying in wait for something to go down at like the big gang meeting, but they don't bust it up as it's happening. (laughs) They're letting Cyrus get up and do his. I can only describe it as like the video or audio I've seen of Jim Jones addressing a crowd. I mean, it's Mm. very much the same kind of thing, but with more of a pseudo gandhi speech that he's given like we can control all the crime together
0: yeah and if you've ever heard the famous clip of shaquille o'neal uh, celebrating with the lakers he directly rips off this cyrus line because like michael jackson he's a huge warriors fan so shaquille o'neal gets up on the mic he's like can you dig
1: it Exactly. I could totally hear that too out but now that you've said it, I have memories of him
0: doing that. So, yes. Which, when that line came out, my wife said, Hey, that's our magnet on our fridge because I've got a magnet of Cyrus <laughs> holding his hands up saying, Can you dig it?
1: That is awesome. There's a whole.
0: <laughs> the, the, Coney Island has a whole Warriors Cottage industry at this point. Like, I got oh, a. Oh, he's smart, you know. I got a t shirt. I got a magnet. I got a sticker. And it was all for like 20 bucks for the whole package of things. So, you know.
1: That's good. Seems like economical too. That's the that's the, the the smart people are cashing in on that. But you no know, I lo- I love Cyrus's whole speech here though because it's just a again it's it's pretty much if we work together there's three times more of us than there are the cops. Can you do math? Can you count suckers? Can you dig it? And I'm I'm having flashbacks <clears> to like Rudy Ray Moore. And some of this other stuff that we've watched back a few Februarys ago, and I'm going, <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's getting riffed on here too. We're trying to cash in on a little bit of that. I mean, I was I was I was digging it. I'll be honest with you. And when David Patrick Kelly starts to smile, I'm like, oh, he's going to start something. Like you just know. And when he pulls out that 357, which is Three times the size of his hand. Um, The fact that he shoots it one-handed is kind of amazing. And uh, no kickback off of that. But he blows Cyrus away. And uh, in total 70s fashion, I mean, he completely slow-mo falls back the whole bit. And insanity ensues as everybody's bailing out of that place. And I did think that was well-staged and well-shot. You get that many extras running around and make it look that organized. It was well done. And you only see one cameraman. Yeah, I know, right? It just kind of comes by, but I almost took that as at first I was like, "Is the news covering this?" Because <laughs> maybe they would. I don't know. I mean, if it leads, it leads, Ron. Right?
0: The news probably covered it after Cyrus got shot, and you know, yeah. the the city arrests you know, however many hundred gang members they, they show taking on taking them out in a paddy wagon later. Yeah, oh yeah,
1: they're they're definitely breaking them down. But that's when we, we really get into what I call the crux of this movie. And it's the thing I didn't expect about this movie, though I knew the basic story. I didn't realize how much of a chase movie this is. I mean, that's really what it is. It's watching these guys just try to get back home. And well, I mean I'm thinking of I'm thinking about all these other movies where I've seen that aped and and used again, but I don't know that any of them do it as effectively as this one does. Like it's paced
0: really well. Well, part of the reason why it works so well is because it's based off one of the most famous stories of all time, which is the Odyssey. Right. And they, they essentially use that as the, the guidepost to establish their pacing. And then Walter Hill, of course, is one of, the most, one of the foremost screenwriters of our age, particularly when it comes to taking a script and making it absolutely uh, ticking clock economical and he of course did a pass on this movie cuz of course why wouldn't you um, um and man it really shows cuz this movie is is it it it, it flows i think
1: Oh, it totally does. And David Shaver, the, the co-writer of this, wrote one of my favorite Stallone flicks of all time, Nighthawks. We've talked about that one before on different shows. And I, th- these, this movie feels like it is a cousin with Nighthawks. Like this is happening at night and then two days later, Nighthawks goes down in the same place. Cause like it all happens in this, around the same time period. <laughs> or maybe, maybe Nighthawks is the winter because everybody's cold, but this is the summer, the end of the summer. And then we head into the fall and we get Nighthawks that save New York City. But yeah, it, it I love the way you describe that. that Walter Hill knows how to turn the alarm clock on. And if you're, you're used to ever having those old bell alarm clocks like we had growing up, you just heard the little tick, 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 tick. You knew it was coming, but you never knew exactly when, right? Because no matter where you put the, the alarm arm, it was somewhere within five to ten minutes of what you thought <coughs> it was going to go off on. And they do a good job of pulling the pins on their grenades as these things go along, the problems these guys run into. So they run back to the subway. The subway gets you know thrown on fire, so can't go back that way. We now got to run through a graveyard and make it 50 miles back to Coney Island. And that's the other thing that I think I've always loved about New York City. It's my favorite big city in America. I absolutely adore everything about it and, and all of its problems and, and it's it's cool stuff. But I love how freaking spread out it is and and how different each place is. I mean, growing up in the South where, you know, county to county was one thing, but you could put all of that like in the state I grew up in and that's New York.
0: Yeah, it's, it, it's amazing how many of the – to me it's amazing how many of the same locations they used – but we were able to dress them to the point where it looked like a completely different part of the city and mm-hmm. uh, that that is one of like the neatest things about the whole thing is that uh, the block, for example, later in the movie, when we get our confrontation with the orphans
1: mm-hmm.
0: that is a block of like what are now million dollar homes wow. in queens um and it's one of the most famous and most well shot blocks in New York City usually as a stand-in for, like, the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side or kind of a ritzy, brown, stony part of town. Um, and even back then, that was an upscale area in Queens. But they were able to just add, like, a few, like, overflowing garbage cans and turn it from what was then a place that still had $100,000 homes into, like, a slum. And it was, you know, it's you can get a lot it, it, it If you do things the right way, which, you, you know, the opposite of trauma, you can get a lot out of New York City in a pretty confined area. But it, it does feel like, it, it feels huge. Like, it feels like a real, for lack of a better term, it feels like a real hero's journey that they're actually taking. Because that, if you were actually to go from uh, Pelham Bay Park all the way to Coney Island, that is like a two-hour subway ride and that's if you don't have to stop or wait for trains it is a long like just going from like downtown brooklyn to coney island was like almost an hour on the subway
1: Yeah, it's a long way. I mean, they even call that out here about the distance that it's going to be and how you know impossible it's going to be. But they just got (laughs) to make it work because they got no other choice, right? They obviously if they hang around there, the groups are going to come down and shoot them, or the cops will. So they they've got to be on the run the whole time. The framing device and the genius framing device of this, and I don't know who to thank for this, but having the voice of Lynn Thigpen as the DJ like basically giving intel to the griffs the whole way of what's going on and trying to you know dog whistle all the gangs across the city as she's playing her smooth R and b in the background. Was is a stroke of just perfect writing, like it, it is an amazing thing because it's a good way to kind of break the story up and pull us out of that for a minute so we can switch scenery around. But it also lets you know, like, the tension is always chasing these guys, they can never get away from it because she's the Greek chorus calling down on them.
0: Yeah, she's literally playing, <laughs> she's literally doing the same job as the Greek chorus, but yeah, she's great in this movie, and you know, that voice. It's just so iconic, and all you see is the voice in her mouth mm-hmm. and like her hand dropping the needle on records, and that's all you need and it, it It's both an efficient way to keep kind of cranking up the heat cranking up the pressure on that pressure cooker that the uh, that the warriors are in, and it also really serves as an effective way to kind of fill in the blanks and provide a little bit of exposition to kind of figure out you know. How on earth did Cyrus and the Gramercy Riffs pull this thing off to get everybody to come together? And I guarantee you that um, DJ Lynn Thigpin definitely had something to do with it.
1: Oh, completely. Like you know, like she's either somebody's older sister or maybe somebody's mom. Even you know, we don't know, but she's definitely got relations in the community there and is going with it. And again, Lykden pay somebody who you know her voice, you've seen her face and stuff. She's in like a, one of my favorite uh, Michael Keaton movies called The Paper. Uh, she's great in that. She was in Just Cause, which is a good cheesy thriller with Sean Connery. And she was in you know Bicentennial Man. She was in the, one of the first remakes of Shaft. She's pretty good in that. Among other things, she's you know passed away now, but. Uh, I think a lot of people grew up knowing her as the voice of where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Yep, well that's the chief. She, yeah, she has got that voice. So it's and she just commands a presence. I, I I put her in like CCH Pounder in the same pile. Of just the way they act and what they do is the same stuff. Like if you remade this today, I would almost demand that CCH Pounder has to be your voice on the radio. Either that or Tessa Thompson.
0: That's a good choice. That's a good that's a good pull too that CCH Pounder thing. I definitely get that. In a way, uh, Lynn Thinkpin is also kind of playing the role of Super Soul from the movie Vanishing Point, where she's basically like the voice of God. Yes. And yes. kind of like guiding or d- either driving our heroes and driving our antagonists. She's almost like... You know how a lot of times in like Greek tragedies, Zeus will just show up and tell people what to do? Mm-hmm. or uh like in Clash of the Titans you see him moving the chess pieces and that sets things up for uh you know uh everybody to fight or whatever it's almost that kind of role that she's playing
1: yeah, she's she's moving the pieces around and she's giving directions the whole way. It makes it fun. I also love the slang that she lays out, and they don't bother to try to explain all of it to us. You just have to pick it up as you go. But like, all you boppers out there, you know, don't get wrecked on the side. You know, she's talking all the. You almost think it's jive, but what you realize is it's gang talk. I mean, they're talking about this is how you fight, it's how you hit somebody, it's what that means, and I don't know. I just I thought it was it was cool and. The, again, that gives such a cool framing device to get between scene to scene and stuff is going down. I mean, I think that's fun. <clears throat> it makes up for something, though, that I am going to ding this movie for. And it's not that I dislike this guy. I, I like Michael Beck. I, I've listened to a lot of him, him read a lot of good John Grisham novels to me and audiobooks through the years. That's really what I know him from, other than some of the stuff he's been on. But he is about as bland and vanilla a lead as you could possibly get. Like, he is flat for most of this movie.
0: You know that is that is a fair point, but he's also trying to do like be the stoic, emotionless leader type, and that's never that's never something that really can come across well, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when it's offset by you know someone as is, is manic and, and charismatic as a, as Michael Patrick Kelly. Or even, you know, the more visually distinctive members of the gang, like uh, Cochise and Rembrandt.
1: Yeah. Even or,
0: like, I mean, ver- even Vermin.
1: Yeah, even Joel Vermin. Well, I think the one that really steals a lot of it is Ajax. James Remar is delightfully insane in his own role, too, as I, this quick-tempered enforcer He's kind of rapey, too, which is a little scary, and Mercedes Rule kicks the shit out of him for it, which I think was awesome. But, I, yeah, I, I liked him. I was sort of sad when he disappeared uh, somewhere in the second act. He got, got handcuffed by the police, and that was, like, that was it. I, I mean, I expected, like, they're going to go break him out or whatever. No, nope. you get pinched, you go to jail. It's like, man, there's no honor among thieves. <clears throat>
0: <laughs> yeah it's 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 weird, oh well, I mean, what are they supposed to do? go bum rush the police and get him back and all get arrested. I mean, they're in hot water enough, just running from gangs, and yeah. <laughs> there are few interactions with the police. the police see them and immediately go to start bashing their heads in, so it's not like you know he he got a, Ajax got a rough ride on the way back to the precinct, so to speak. <laughs>
1: Yes, he did. He he did not have a good time. That is for sure. We got to talk about some of the fights here too. We mentioned the one with the the Turnbull ACs where they break out the Molotov cocktail. That's also where they pick up the lone girl of the thing here, or at least the lone that we're going to pay any attention to. Mercy never well, comes. Valkenberg.
0: She comes a little bit later, but. It's oh. it's not that far after that time that they have to go through the orphan orphan's territory.
1: Okay, see, that all blended together for me, so I'm glad you explained that. I thought that was, like, the same group of people. So we're, they're right next to each other. They've got to be.
0: Yeah, they're nearby, but the orphans are... Uh, the Turnbull ACs are a big outfit, and the orphans are a small-time outfit. Because you remember in, in the original opening, Cyrus talks about that there are uh, the 100 major gangs represented, and there are a 100 more... Who aren't there? Mm-hmm. The orphans would be one of that second tier one hundred.
1: Gotcha. gotcha.
0: And I even get the feeling that the warriors are like down on the gang list.
1: They would might be like right on the cusp of like just they just made it into the A group, but they were a B group gang for a number of years. Like they were an FCS team that just moved up to FBS in college yeah, football. Yeah, the- when we used to have that.
0: Yeah, they're the Appalachian state of gangs.
1: There we go, right? Well, you know what? Hey, then they got something going for them because happy states, tough. Uh, so, well, I guess they, yeah, I guess they do take out Michigan in this if you want to call them the Rogues, the Michigan. Um, so,
0: well, I was gonna uh, they, say more like the Baseball Furies or the Michigan. That would work too. I don't feel like the Rogues are that high of a gang because I mean they're the the Rogue territory, at least uh, according to various Wikipedia's, is Hell's Kitchen. Which isn't exactly, so like, prosperous territory. So they're
1: Florida State. That's what you're saying. That's what the Rogues are. The college right. football analogy we're making here. So you brought up one, though. I want to talk about the baseball furies because I'm a huge Yankees fan. So I loved it. Like, all these guys were in pinstripes with, like, two-tone face makeup and mullets and baseball bats. And I, I was there for that. I was there for that fight. I was there for the guy clearly wearing three pillows so the guy could hit him with the bat in the side. It was great. I, I loved everything about that fight. That was awesome.
0: Well, a, a lot of times you see more of the padding and stuff on these guys because uh those are the actual actors fighting.
1: Yeah, they no, don't no money for stunts.
0: <laughs> well, there 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 were some stunts, but Walter Hill said he wants the the he wants the fights to look realistic, so everybody on the set who's going to be involved in the fight is going to stunt school. Mm-hmm. And they put them all through fight school to learn how to actually fight. Yeah. One thing that surprises me is uh,
1: about this movie because, and they do whittle the group down, so it's not completely like this, but I really thought at some point through this, like a horror movie, all of the warriors were going to get taken out till it was just Swan and now Mercy as the final girl, running for their lives to the end. And the fact that you know four or five of them are still hanging around by the time the delegation gets back was a little surprise for me. I, I thought more of them would get taken out along the way, especially when they run into you know stuff like the Lizzies and everything like that. Which boy, is that not you know thinly veiled?
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty obviously, pretty obviously they that one point they were called the Leszies but they had yeah. to change it <laughs> yeah but yeah it's it's wild because you do expect more of them to get caught up or get you know get arrested or whatever but that's not really how life works you know mm-hmm. like ajax brings trouble on himself yeah you know and uh you know if you stop to tussle with the cop on the edge of a subway platform, don't be surprised if the cop throws you off.
1: Yeah, that's what that's what Fox gets, you're right. So, I, I guess I just was I was looking at it more of like, if this works and it's timed out, kind of like a thriller, again, if, we're, if it was Friday the 13th Part 8, we'd be picking these people off as we go around. Another movie set in Dirty New York City. Um, or Canada, depending on how you want to remember that. So... I just, I don't know. I thought more of them would be taken out, but I guess it makes sense that they don't. Swan obviously becomes, you know, much more of the leader along the way, or he has to take on that role because everybody's getting sidelined here and there. They're getting divided up. We have all these amazing fights as we go along. And along the way, again, the constant of the DJ reminding everybody where they're going to be and what's coming on. And it all leads up, though, to... That last that that last showdown, man, when they finally make it back to the boardwalk and they're gathered weapons, I'm like, "Okay, we're going to get the rumble of all time. This is going to be what you know Francis Ford Coppola rips off in The Outsiders for that rumble, right?" And <laughs> we don't. And that I don't know, man. I I kind of wanted to see a little more of a rumble.
0: Yeah, but I think by this point we've already seen them fighting and running so much. There've been so many really good rumbles in this movie. Uh, before this, it's it's hard to fault them, because by this point, they've been running and fighting for from night until the next day, so they're exhausted. It ain't going to be much of a fight, no matter what kind of weapons they've got, right. especially against the Gramercy Riffs because there are hundreds of them.
1: Yeah, well, i mean not even talking about them. I just mean when they find you know the rogues are there. David Patrick Kelly, the, the greatness of that scene with those three bottles, and the fact that they just told him to do something, he went and found those, and five minutes later had that down, and just comes up with that screeching "Come out and play." All of that is it's one of the neatest villain scenes in a movie, particularly of the time.
0: Well, he says that he says now that that. Uh... He was improvising with the bottles and saying a bunch of different stuff, and Walter Hill fed him the Warriors come out to play line, and he ran with okay. it. Okay. Which, yeah. Although Walter Hill gives him all the credit for coming up with it because, you know, I think a lot of. One of the many reasons why that line works is the bottles clinking. Mm hmm. And another reason why that works is the way he screeches it. Yeah. In this. It's funny. It's a funny way, but it's also really unsettling because it's kind of ends in like that when his voice cracks, Mm -hmm. it really kind of makes it like that slot just pushes it slightly over into the unsettling category for me.
1: Yeah, and that's why I say the setup for this was going to be so much more. But but thinking back, just through all the things that they've rolled through, you make a good point. They've had some hella fights in some graveyards. We fought some dudes on the street. We've had to run through, you know. All kinds of burning buildings and subways. Uh, I mean, we we've uh, had to deal with uh, the Lizzie's attack, which I mean, the way that goes down, we we kind of glossed over it. But these you know, gorgeous women or whatever, all start making out with the dudes, and then they start pulling knives and guns on them. And I read a little behind the scenes that like all of them were supposed to die. Everybody's supposed to get their head cut, you know. And then they just liked the actors so much they didn't want to cut them out of the movie, so they narrowly escaped death. And I think are those supposed to be? Like the sirens of the Odyssey that, that you know, sideline our, our heroes and stuff?
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, that was definitely their intended purpose.
1: I mean, I, I'm also thinking of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou with that and just how <laughs> much more interesting that version of that is. But, uh, you know, the Coen brothers have their touch as well. They They do different stuff from anyone. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's neat, though, to think about all the places these guys have had to fight. And we, you're right. By the time they we, get around to the boardwalk again, they've got to be worn out.
0: I mean, they're even having a hard time gathering their weapons because you see how much how much labor it is they're going through to like, pull pipes off the walls because they're, they're caught completely unawares. And also they know they can't go back to their they, clubhouse. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I also took that as they probably just bolted all that crap on the wall anyway just to mess with the actor to make it look more real or whatever. This movie's all hung up on how real it is. I did think it was neat, though, when Swan gets his switchblade out and he goes to tuck it in the back, and like for two seconds he almost just sticks it straight in his pants and he realizes, maybe I should put that in the belt. And I was like, yes, yes, be careful how you holster your knife. Uh, there. <laughs> or it is a switchblade, fold it back up and get it back out when you need it
0: yeah that's the whole point of the switchblade, but yeah right? you see a lot of switchblades in this movie. The seventies were like a switchblade wonderland
1: it was and I think in the eighties that got replaced by the butterfly knife if you remember that and anybody I do remember flick that. one of those I remember watching the bad dudes on the uh, playground growing up uh winging those around and when that when that broke out, you got out of the way um, <laughs> so I mean that's, that's I mean it was tough in fourth grade, man, <laughs> so I saw some stuff so, Forest Hills was hardcore.
0: Well, that's because they they made the switchblade illegal, but the butterfly knife was still legal.
1: Yeah, you could buy it at the fair for, for a while, nine like ninety nine.
0: So. I mean, you could also buy switchblades at the fair here, but you know, yeah, I True. didn't say True. that, and I don't have a few. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorite fights we have. We completely glossed over, which is the bathroom fight.
1: Mm, that is a good
0: fight. Which these days you can't get into the bathrooms on the subway platforms anymore unless you're at like. Grand Central Station, mm-hmm. or uh, Columbus Circle, or one of the big, like, safe, like, quasi-mall, quasi-commuter kind of things. Because otherwise, they've they've got them all blocked off, and they've all been turned into some of them were turned into ticket booths, some of them were turned into snack bars, some of them are just employee lounges. Mm-hmm. Um, but that bathroom was the only set that was built for this movie. That's the really? only thing that was shot on a soundstage. Everything else was shot um, in that Hoyt-Shermerhorn, uh, the Hoyt-Shermerhorn subway station, or the 72nd Street station. Because right outside of... When they're coming out of the what's supposed to be the 96th Street station, which is actually the Shermerhorn rebranded, they come up and they leave what is supposed to be the 96th Street station, but it's actually the 72nd Street station, and you can tell that because in the background of the shot, there's a Grace Papaya, and that Grace Papaya is still there. And I did get a grazed Papaya dog and some papaya juice uh, on my first trip to New York at that very same Grace Papaya.
1: That's pretty wild. So I, that is still there too. The thing I remember the most about that fight, Rom, was I thought it's like they're fighting the car hops out of Sonic. You know, <laughs> her just her, her dress, like you know. Uh, Ramones ripoffs or something like that, which I, no, they,
0: the they puns, were so. they were dressed like Dexy's Midnight Runners ripoffs.
1: Okay, yeah, better better comparison. You're right, but their own their own
0: skates, just like they the were called, They were technically the punks. That was their name.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's kind of lame, by the way, right? Everybody else had cool names. That one's like, we just gave up. Like, we
0: didn't have anything else to say. I mean, they got taken out like a bunch of punks. Does that count?
1: <laughs> they did. Yeah, they did. They, they straight went down in Mercy Proves she can hold her own. That was. I think that's the whole point of that is so she can get a few you know, rounds in on somebody. We realized that, yeah, she could be an adopted member of the Warriors or whatever. I, I think that's what we're led to believe happens in this movie. But let's get a final fight though, where it is Luther and Swan. And I love that Swan's idea is like, let's go one-on-one. That way, not everybody has to fight because he knows his dudes are toast if they have to go up against anybody again so they've got his back but I need you to explain to me how he like time shifts and teleports out of the way of that bullet to you know sling that switchblade blade into uh, Luther's arm fast enough because that was a weird weird scene Uh,
0: I can mount no I can mount no uh, defense of that scene except for it's pretty well established throughout the movie that Luther's just kind of a kind of a loudmouth little jerk mm-hmm. who seems to be in charge because he is the loudest and the meanest. Not necessarily he's definitely not the tallest or, or most physically able member of the group. And I think shooting someone who's not paying attention to you and you have time to sit and line up the shot and take forever like when he shoot Cyrus. Versus having to essentially draw and shoot uh, a, a, an active threat are two completely different things.
1: I guess so. I think the the better part of it, and what gets overshadowed by the way, the weird way that ends, is when he tells them, like, he shot Cyrus just because he wanted to. It was very much like Shades of the Dark Knight and the way Heath Ledger's Joker was. He just does things, because that's just what he does. Like, he's total chaos. And, I mean, not only the way he acts, but... That's kind of the rogues is we just do things, you know, they don't really have any reason. And that's I think there's a statement in that is that gang violence is all about a lot of nothing. And Cyrus is even talking about that in his beginning. He said, you know, the reason we can't get ahead in the city is because we're all concerned about our little piece of the turf. And yes, they're still all concerned about the little piece of the turf in the end because the rogues have no plan and they have nothing they can do once their leader is disarmed. And then what what is it that Swan does? He like cuts the side of his head. Is that like marking him in some way or something? Did I miss some sort of warrior's initiation for
0: that? No, he's wiping the blood from the knife in his hair.
1: Oh, I thought he was like cutting him to like let it be known that like you lost to me or something like that was his Zoro mark
0: or something. No, he's just wiping his knife <laughs> off so the cheap thing he got at the boardwalk won't rust. <laughs> I just thought he was cutting the dude's scalp. <laughs> oh well,
1: uh, <laughs> I gave that way too much. But yeah. then the the griffs show up, and that's when you know, like, okay, it's about to go down. And you realize, like, they've learned the truth somewhere along the way. And that's what I wanted to ask you, because I missed that. How did they figure out, or were they listening to Luther's confession? Is that how they figured out that the warriors weren't responsible for killing their leader?
0: I always felt like they heard Luther's confession because they were just kind of watching from the the distance. For all we know, they'd been there the whole time, and and no one just paid any attention to them. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they they may have gotten to Coney Island like long before anybody else sitting around wondering where are these guys? You know, I going yeah. to them to the get here. <laughs> well obviously they sent somebody with a dime to a payphone to drop it to the DJ so she could set everything straight.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you gotta you can't have all the gangs out after the Warriors if the Warriors didn't do anything right. There's a code.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. You can only kill people when they deserve it, apparently.
0: I will say that that beach is not Coney Island, but I'm not sure where it is.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that's Coney Island either, but you know what? It works. It's fine, because they do get that final shot of everything in the daytime, and it it looks good.
0: Yeah, I want to say it's like out in the Rockaways somewhere. I went to Rockaway Beach the last time I was there to walk around barefoot in the sand and hum Ramone songs to myself. Uh, It it kind of looks like a few spots out there, yeah.
1: Yeah. As as is requirement if you're going to go out there and do that. That's correct. Uh yeah, but the rogues are no more. Like I think we can assume that whatever's left of them there gets completely now, swallowed.
0: Now, here's the thing. Is it the all of the rogues or is it just Luther? Cuz they look like they're going to turn him over to the rifts.
1: Yeah, I was going to say like I don't think his guys are going to put up much of a fight. Maybe one of them, but there's there's like five more times rifts than anybody on that
0: beach. <laughs> They don't look very supportive of him when he's, like, huddling on the ground after he's been humiliated.
1: No. Well, I mean, again, you know, once once the ships sink, the rats run, right? That's the, the whole point. Because the honorable gangs are are taking care of business on the side, as we'll see.
0: Yep. So, yeah.
1: So the DJ comes back with the alert that it's all called off, and then she... she puts the song in the city out there and swan and mercy are all kind of strolling down the beach and we get the rising sun that's you know usually movies end in the sunset but this one's going to end in the sunrise and i don't know it's the I, dawning I
0: of a hopeful new day jay
1: that's what it was right they're all going to go back and go to community college and start something with their lives right nope we're just gonna have more of a criminal enterprise i guess that was their next bit
0: uh, gonna take I, over I, hill's kitchen
1: yeah, I do have to ask. Like, was there ever talk of a sequel for this? Because I mean, it's so darn profitable. I know it's a little bit before sequel time got to be real popular in Hollywood, but how could they not have made another one of these after you know scoring so big on the on the box office?
0: Well, one of the issues that the movie had was when it was released, uh, there was a lot of violence at the screenings. Oh, not inspired by the movie, but because the movie was about street gangs that attracted a bunch of people who were in street gangs (laughs) so like it got a it did well in the box office but the next weekend of the film it got linked to uh like it had a really good opening weekend like it grossed like three and a half million dollars on opening weekend but the next weekend there was a a, a gang started to show up to see it Uh, so they ran into some issues especially in like southern california and boston yeah so paramount pulled all of their ads their, their radio and their television and a bunch of theaters added security and stuff. And some of the theater owners even dropped it. Paramount had to pay them off for it. So after that happened, there was definitely not going to be a sequel.
1: Yeah. And they have kicked around a remake for a number of years. I think Mark Neveldine was the most recently attached to it. But I think that may be turning into a TV series, The Last I Read. But that was a couple of years ago that there was news on it.
0: I mean, I mean, I would watch a uh, Neveldine Warriors movie. Or TV series. I mean,
1: yeah, it's it's Prime made for, like, you know, well, I would say, like, the FX, but now, like, something like Hulu or Amazon could really, you know, make this really awesome. I could see it happening, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. That's, especially these days, because there's such a market for, like, t- we need TV to fill time for all these streaming mm-hmm. services. Like, if you rolled out a Quibi of, like, 15-Minute Warriors episodes, I'm all over it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I might actually subscribe to Quibi at that point if we did that. So th- I could see that going down. Well, Ron, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for the Warriors?
0: Well, uh, as you said, I'm the I'm a big fan of this. I have been for a long, long time now, and it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's so relentlessly entertaining. It 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 starts moving and then it doesn't stop. You get side quests essentially. You get people distracted. You get things people doubling back, going back for more stuff. You know, getting arrested, getting thrown in front of trains, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But none of them really feel like divergent in any way. It just kind of feels like we're following this group of characters, and you know, some of them get killed, some of them get arrested, some of them don't, uh, some of them make it, but they're all. Essentially trying to get to the same destination. They just go about it in different ways. Because you get uh, Mercy and Swan who take a long walk through the subway. You get uh, Rembrandt and Cochise and uh, the other guy whose name escapes me. Snow. Snow. Get sidetracked by the sirens. You know. You get... uh, Everybody kind of gets their own little mini-adventure at certain points in the movie. But... It is, it remains one of the most iconic, like, rock and roll dystopia movies um, of its era and of all time. I mean, it's become a cult movie for very good reason. And you still see people at, like, back when conventions were a thing, you would still see people dressed as, like, baseball furies at, like, Comic-Con and stuff. So, for that, I'm going to go with a large popcorn with extra grease paint
1: (laughs) (laughs) man i think you've summed it up well not a perfect movie but infinitely rewatchable to the point of i bought it on amazon after watching it because i was like i i think i'm gonna need to revisit this again i just need to own it so it's now in the digital collection i will definitely be coming back to the warriors and i'm glad I've, i've added it in it was also on sale, so that, that was awesome. But, yeah, I mean, I, I was like, yeah, I definitely want to watch that again. I want to be able to watch it when I want to see it. I want to show it to other people, et cetera. I, I think it's one of those that if you're like me and you missed it, but you're sort of vaguely aware of it, totally worth your time. And it's neat to watch Walter Hill really at some of the height of his craft. And if you mm-hmm. love Beverly Hills Cop and you love some of the other stuff that he knows how to do, watch this movie because you can see a lot of it in it. Um, yeah, some of the actors are a little bland, and that's kind of funny, but, you know, and, and it gets a little wonky, but it, it's so much fun. This movie's a, a ton of fun without being tongue-in-cheek, and I can see how it got ripped off and turned into such cheese in other movies, but this one plays it so straight. And the cool synthy score, which is very Carpenter-esque, and then you punctuate it with the Joe Walsh song. I'm in. So it's a large popcorn for me as well. And, it, you know, there's some actors that are going to come back next time, Ron, but the director's coming back because we're going to the Streets of Fire, baby, to wrap up this trilogy.
0: Yes, and I'm very excited about that. That's I'm not a super fan of that movie, but I've saw it, I caught it once on like DVR and it stayed on my DVR until literally I lost my subscription to cable. And I'm super excited to watch it again.
1: Yeah, I'm not a huge Willem Dafoe fan, but Michael Perry and that era Diane Lane, really any era Diane Lane, and that music, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm there. So
0: I'm, yeah, I was, was so Yeah, it's a good time.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I knew watching that growing up. We'll talk about it more next time. But when you decided you want to do that again, I just said, let me go watch the trailer of that again. And I was like, oh, yes, I remember. Oh, yes. So I'm looking forward to, to lighten up the streets of fire and see what's there. Because uh, known is, uh, well, it's got a different reputation than some of the other things we've covered uh, here in the retrospective. But it'll be fun to come back and revisit again. Ron, tell folks how they can follow your stuff on Den Geek. Okay, you
0: can find my work as always on Den of Geek. I will be getting ready for my big months, which are September and October, but uh, when I typically cover like The Walking Dead, American Horror Story, and stuff like that, I will have just wrapped up uh, my series on the Snow on Snowpiercer, the uh, TNT upcoming tnt drama i've not seen the movie snowpiercer but i'm going to be doing the tv series Uh, so that's that'll be fun for me and and i look forward to being yelled at in the comment section about things i don't know about the movie (laughs) You should definitely watch the movie
1: and go back and listen to Nick and me review that. We did that one back in the day. So That's
0: right. right. Yeah, good good chance to sneak in a plug there, Jay.
1: Yeah, there you it go. It's back in the archives. And of course, folks, you can listen to our archives on your podcast feed. Find all of those at filmstrippodcast.com. Please leave us a positive review wherever you find the show. You can follow the show's social media at @filmstrippod on Twitter and Instagram. Search for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook and connect with us there. We appreciate the support. So until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Can you dig it?
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, Podcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.